This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 378. What I've seen in the space over the last few years, especially with social media, making everybody accessible and everybody a quote unquote brand is that people do it one of two ways and neither are working. Yes, it's possible to build a business around your expertise, ideas, message and personality. But first, you need to realize you are the brand. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. Each week, we're joined by another author, and we chat about their latest book and their unique insights on a bunch of different topics. And today, that guest is my good friend, Mike Kim. He's author of the brand new book called You Are the Brand, the eight-step blueprint to showcase your unique expertise and build a highly profitable, personally fulfilling business. I'm going to ask Mike to share what he means by don't build your brand, become your brand, what he's learned over the years about launching a product into the marketplace, how to charge what you're worth and value pricing your projects and plenty more. You can't have listened to the show recently and not heard me talk about a book I have coming out called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. That's August 31st. The book's website going live in about a week, which by the way, will be readtoleadbook.com. And we'll have all kinds of free stuff to pass along your way when you pre-order the book. Excited about all that. But boy, it was a real treat for me last week when I visited family in Indianapolis, helping my mom uh, get rid of some old stuff as she moved recently and taking my one advanced review copy that I have along with me and being able to share it with everybody around the dinner table. And one person jokingly said, oh, I want to want to see if I'm in here. And I actually said, well, you are. And her eyes kind of lit up and I looked around the room and I was like, well, in fact, every one of you is in here. Uh, and so I, I took the book back for a second and just began reading from the acknowledgments. And it was particularly fun to see the look on my mom's face when I said her name as if she wasn't expecting to be in the acknowledgments. Uh, she kind of lit up a bit and uh, was very touched by what was there. And uh, she began sort of leafing through it later. And I don't know if she even realizes I did this, but I took a few pictures of her leafing through it because it was so uh, surreal to be at this moment. But there was a a bittersweet aspect of it as well, and that was the fact that my father wasn't there to see this and to to share in her pride. He passed away about three and a half years ago. And you know, while I'm excited about all that's happened and all that's happening in the book coming out, there was still that little sort of tinge of, uh, I wish he could have been here, you know? And so I share that just so that if there's something you're sitting on that you're, you're waiting to get just right or you've been hemming and hawing for whatever reason, as morbid as this might sound, I want you to think for just a moment about someone who you would like to see light up as they're reading the acknowledgments or hearing the acknowledgments read to them uh, and being so excited about that, being proud of you at the same time. Imagine them not being here, you not being able to share that experience. And if that's not motivation for getting off your duff and, and getting it done, I don't know what is. So I share that with you to give you maybe some extra motivation so that moment for you when it comes uh, is not only exciting, but also not uh, bittersweet if <laughs> it doesn't have to be. Again, if all goes according to schedule starting this time next week, you'll be able to check it all out at readtoleadbook.com. Get access to 
the introduction and the first chapter for free so you can kind of kick the tires first if you want to. But then for anyone who pre-orders, there's all kinds of free stuff coming your way. Again, that'll be readtoleadbook.com. Mike Kim is a marketing strategist, direct response copywriter, and now author. He's been hired by some of today's most influential thought leader brands, including John Maxwell, Story Brand, and Catalyst, and has spoken at industry-leading events, including Social Media Marketing World, Podcast Movement, and Tribe Conference. I've got two out of those three. One more to go. For years, he was the chief marketing officer of a successful multi-million dollar company near New York City. Nowadays, you'll find him speaking at conferences, looking for the next great place to scuba dive and sipping a glass of single malt, all while teaching everything he knows about branding, entrepreneurship, and life through his top-ranked and rated podcast, Brand You. Well, this guy is a true friend. I've known Mike for about uh, seven years, and I am excited. I made I made uh, the parameters pretty tight years ago. I'm excited to finally have him on my show because he's written a book. And it's called You Are the Brand, the eight-step blueprint to showcase your unique expertise and build a highly profitable, personally fulfilling business. Mike, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Finally, after all these years, <laughs> I'm on the show. And I've got to tell everyone, I, I, first, I remember the first episode of Read to Lead, Jeff. Oh, you do? I remember where I was. I was in my car in Palisades Park, New Jersey, and when I was still working as the chief marketing officer for this company. And I had been at the time, at that time, just listening to different podcasts, dreaming about becoming my own business owner, becoming my own expert business owner, if you will, my own entrepreneur mm. as an expert, as a consultant. And I was really in that pivot point, you know, that that season of transition where it's like, how am I going to navigate these waters? So I turned on a lot of different podcasts. I don't remember how I found you. It was probably someone else's show that it recommended you probably one of you know our our friends Dan Miller or or Ray Edwards or somebody like that mm. and i remember i was driving just driving up this little hill i still remember because i remember this is a brilliant name for a show <laughs> and what's funny is like maybe a month earlier i had i had heard this phrase read to lead you know it, it, people have said that for years but mm. i put out a guide on my website that just shared my top book recommendations and i was called it was called like read to lead and then your podcast came out i was like Oh my gosh, I've got to listen to this show. So you and this show were with me all those years ago, probably seven or eight years ago it, it now is. Mm. And I was like, one day I will get on this show. But like as you mentioned, you've got to <laughs> you've got to write a book to get on the show. And here we are. So I'm so grateful are. that uh, we're here. <laughs> I remember driving, listening to a Ray Edwards podcast, uh, having uh, followed up on something he mentioned in a previous episode. And that that was, if you have a podcast, let me know about it. I'd love to check it out. And so I did that. And here I am listening to Ray's show. And he mentions my show and plays a part of it. And I was freaking out. <laughs> so that was probably <laughs> the episode that, that you heard. I just thought that was the coolest thing. Uh, well, here we are all this time later. You've written this book. It's a great book. I finished it just this morning. And uh, I highly recommend this to anyone uh, needing help with building a personal brand. I want you to begin, though, by kind of explaining what the book is not. You touch on this in the very beginning. Yeah, the book is not about image. <laughs> the, the bottom line, <laughs> you know, we hear these terms now, personal branding and all these these phrases are tossed around now. And what's interesting is that when I started my own podcast, the Brand You podcast about back in 2014, seven years ago, I had coaches tell me, nobody knows what you mean by personal branding. And now 
everyone uses those terms. Even mm. corporate America is using these terms. And essentially, it's another way of saying your reputation. And what I've found now being in this space for the last seven years, I work primarily with experts, uh, speakers, coaches, and creators who want to create impact with their ideas and get their message heard. So I'm marketing something that is, quote unquote, softer. It's not a hard, tangible product. Even if it's a book or if it's a course, it's still an idea that's packaged in a certain way. And marketing people is a very different thing than marketing a, a Q-tip or a coffee <laughs> cup or, or a mug or, or anything tangible, a car, right? And so what I've seen in the space over the last few years, especially with social media, making everybody accessible and everybody uh, a quote unquote brand is that people do it one of two ways and neither are working. Mm. On one hand, people are, they're, they're presenting a false version of themselves. And I'll take it to the extreme, but mm. this happens. These are people who rent big Airbnbs, stage a photo <laughs> shoot and pretend like it's their house yeah. and say, if you follow my business or program, you'll live in a place like this. And it's ridiculous, but people do that, or to some degree, they do this. Mm. And these folks don't understand that attention is not owed, it's earned. You have to earn it. Now, on the flip side of that, we have people who are oversharing things in the name of authenticity. And it's as if they're selling their struggles, and that's how they want to get attention. Uh, Jeff, if you've ever scrolled through Facebook one day, and all of a sudden, someone you know, maybe a close friend or maybe someone you don't even really know, right? Because Facebook's weird. We're connected to a bunch <laughs> of people we don't know. And they post a close-up picture of some nasty gash they have on their knee from a yeah. biking. Nobody <laughs> wants to see that. Right. And to that effect, that's exactly what these folks are doing. They're like, here's everything that hurts in my life. Here's the gory details of my divorce or my problem child or my depression and, and blah, blah. And I'm just being real and authentic. And at the end of the day, they get attention, but it's like attention for a car wreck on the highway. Mm. It's there, but it's short-lived. And so here in You Are the Brand, and really in my business for the last seven, eight years, what I've really, really emphasized is this simple question to serve as a litmus test. Can I build a campfire around what I'm sharing? Can I build a campfire around it? Mm. By that, I mean, is it warm? Is it inviting? Is it something that I can build, here's this, a community around? Mm. And that's a really telling question. And I'm, am I becoming someone that people want to hang out with around a campfire and share stories with? Am I becoming a good host? Am I becoming a good, warm person, healthy person that people just want to be around? And that's my contention in the book. You know, you are the brand. Become the person you're trying to sell to people, not just great Instagram filters or, you know, staged photo shoots. Please no. Right? And that, that's really the point. Become the person you're trying to sell to people. Yeah. And in and, and short, it's that distinction you make at one point. Don't build the brand. Become the brand. You talked about reputation. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I loved the the simple exercise you did years ago that, that helped you kind of clarify your unique expertise. You were writing out these sentences and you realized if I take away a part of this sentence, what's the, and it was just very powerful. Describe the process you use to help brands, businesses, or, or leaders you know, find clarity as to, to what to say in their message. Yeah. So when I say a personal brand, a lot of folks will ask, well, what do you mean by that? And it's just a public facing identity. Like we all have an identity. You know, Jeff, I know you differently as a friend than, of course, your wife Annie does. And yet the way I know you and the way Annie knows you and the way your professional colleagues know you 
in the way you know your 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 family knows you is all different, and yet it's all still you. So when we talk about a brand and building in a, a brand and finding our expertise, a brand is really a, a collection or a composite of your ideas, your expertise, your reputation, and your personality. And all of that wrapped into one, depending on who you're talking to, can change. And so what happens a lot of times is that we individually, and this happened to me all those years ago when I was in New, Jer- in New Jersey and working at that marketing job, we tend to see everything first through the lens of the organization or the company or the line of work that we're in mm. rather than seeing ourselves. So one day I was frustrated trying to figure out what I was good at. And I just wrote down what I did at all these jobs that I had had over the previous couple of years. And so right out of college, I was teaching high school students SATs and ACTs to get ready for college. And then I worked at a church for a little while as the music director. And there I led team meetings and I led volunteers and I hosted conferences and I marketed our albums and I spoke. And then uh, when I took this marketing job, I was recruiting. I was uh, you know, putting, putting things out there for seminars and workshops and open houses. And then I started to dive deeper into some of the soft skills. I ran board meetings. I cast vision. And we tend to just look at what's on our job description instead of laying everything out. And I laid everything out and I took my pen and I just crossed off the end of every sentence. And instead of I speak at church, I speak. Mm. Instead of I marketed our, our albums, I'm a marketer. And instead of, you know, I taught high school students SATs, I'm a teacher. Instead of I hosted conferences and seminars and open houses and workshops across all these different jobs. I'm an event host. <laughs> and dude, when I saw that staring mm. back at me, I cannot overstate how profound it was. Wow. Because it took the blinders off. I, that was Mike Kim that I was seeing, <laughs> not my job or my company or the mm. organization I worked for. So I want to encourage you, the listener, if you are in that space, whether you're looking to start your own business or go into a different line of, uh, of, of, of work or even just look for another job at, at, a, at a different company in the same line of work, really list out what you truly do every day. There were, there were a couple of times, Jeff, where I, I had to talk my, uh, my, my boss off a cliff because she was so frustrated with work. And I'm like mentoring my <laughs> boss. You know. So in the book, I have a few shorter examples, but here I can expound on that a little bit more. And, and I want you to realize you probably have a million skills mm. that you don't realize are very marketable and valuable. Um, one of the distinctions you make, and, and, and this is one of the things I like about you, and, and it kind of reminds me a bit of, of a talent Seth Godin possesses, and that's your ability to name and label things. And at least it, it was the first time I had heard or, or seen these labels. They may not be new to you, but they're, they're new to me. And that was this sort of how-to-preneur versus idea-preneur. Share a bit about the difference between those two and, and how which one you are affects your, your monetization path. Yeah, so how to pr- I've totally made these up. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> they are they are they are new to everybody. I just mm. totally made them up. But I made them up in working with clients so regularly. I've never mm. been a guy who just hides behind a laptop. I love doing workshops. I love getting out and getting in the dirt with people and it really helping them where they are. And so over the years I was working with folks who were a blend between what I now call a how-topreneur and an ideapreneur. A how-topreneur teaches you how to do something or does it for you. It's very straightforward. They solve a very particular problem, usually through a process. There's a methodology to it. An ideapreneur 
and this this is why being here on Read to Lead is so appropriate. <laughs> an ideapreneur is someone who simply has an idea, a philosophy, or a perspective that they're trying to spread. They're not even necessarily trying to solve a problem for someone. They're just trying to raise awareness. Mm. And they often do it through books or through presentations. So I'm a how-topreneur. When someone has a problem, a business owner, a personal brand, they call me and they say, how do I fix my marketing? How do I do? Mm. How do I write better sales copy? How do I tweak my messaging so that it really cuts through all the noise in the marketplace? And I have a framework, which is why my book is written this way. An ideapreneur I can give two examples, which I talk about in the book. The more well-known person may be uh, Brene Brown, Mm. and she's written some amazing books over the years. But at the end of the day, in no way, shape, or form does Brene Brown give you an eight-step framework to dare greatly in life (laughs) and to overcome shame and to embrace vulnerability. Mm. She came to prominence by accident, by her own admission, because her TEDx talk blew up. And what she did was she uncovered a problem people didn't even know they had. Mm. That's the difference. So when someone comes to me and says, my marketing isn't working, they know their marketing isn't working. They're just not sure why or what in the marketing isn't working. But in Brene's audience, in Dr. Brown's audience, when she is speaking about daring greatly or living more vulnerably, her readers, her listeners are not waking up in the morning and saying, how can I live daring today. They're like, I feel unfulfilled in life. I'm not happy. I feel like the world is out to get me. All of these things. I'm carrying this. I feel like there's this dark cloud over my head all the time. And when Dr. Brown shared that talk, it went viral because it brought this level of awareness to people. This is what's really going on with you. Mm. And so she had to monetize very differently. And if I were to talk to her for, for an hour I'm sure it would be a fulfilling, riveting conversation, illuminating in many mm. ways. And yet at the end of the day, I don't have something tangible in my hands. I don't have something that's fixed. I don't have something that I can point to and say, this is what I got. Mm. Whereas if you hire a marketing consultant, you can say, well, he set up this page or he, he fixed my plumbing or you know, <laughs> if it's a plumber. And you mentioned Seth Godin. This is a way to tie this up. But you know, he's a marketing expert. I'm in marketing. But we are actually two very different types of people. Mm -hmm. Seth writes these wonderful books, Tribes, Purple Cow, This is Marketing. And he is spreading philosophies around marketing. And I remember buying Purple Cow and the pragmatist in me was frustrated because I was like, I thought he was going to tell me how to build a purple cow (laughs) in marketing. A purple cow, the premise Mm -hmm. is that you you do something so interesting, it stands out as obvious as a purple cow. He doesn't write curriculum-based books. He writes message-based books because he's an ideapreneur. I am a how-topreneur. I write curriculum-based books. I have a process. I have frameworks. And so those are the distinctions, and they market and monetize very, very differently. You mentioned Purple Cow. Uh, That book holds a special place for me because it was the book, gosh, 18 years ago now, that sort of reignited that dormant love for reading that had just been sitting there dormant since I was a kid, you know, school kind of educated out of me the desire to read, if I'm being completely honest, but Seth helped bring that back. And then to have him here a couple of times now is, was kind of like surreal. Uh, having you here is surreal. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's incredible, but that's exactly the point. And I don't say this at my own expense. His book is going to inspire people to think differently. Mm. And even like you mentioned, to love reading again and to open your mind. And that's his objective. 
just open your mind. My book, it has some stories in it, and I really struggled early on in the writing process with this. I think it's a very readable book. There's a lot of warmth and you know self-deprecating humor, and there's some fun stuff in there. But at the end of the day, the book is a blueprint, and I call it a blueprint. Hmm. I want people to refer back to it if they're looking to build an expert-based business, an expertise-based business, come back to it. Come back to it. There's so much practical stuff in there from the things I've learned over eight years of consulting and coaching. I don't know that the book is going to inspire people to read. I want it certain, mm. certainly to inspire people to step out and develop themselves and grow. But you know from reading the book, as it goes on, it becomes more and more practical. Mm-hmm. The first two, three chapters are very, very inspirational, very, very motivational. But as the book goes on, it becomes the blueprint. And that's the difference even between Seth Godin and I, who are both in the marketing space and we're just very different people. I took at least six or seven pages of notes of things I want to go back and implement. So yeah, I found it to be very, very practical for sure. There you go. Well, let's get into some of that blueprint. And what for someone maybe just beginning the process, would you say they should probably think about doing right out of the gate? What's what's numero uno? First is having a point of view. And I know that sounds so weird, but you mentioned, Jeff, earlier that you had reading kind of beat out of you by school, (laughs) the love of reading, right? Yeah, yeah. And people feel this way, man. It doesn't matter if you're going through school, the military, education, the workforce. We have been pummeled into no longer having our own point of view. And I believe this is why in recent years, even more so with social media, politics has become so hot because it's the one place uh, and, and sometimes so contentious, it's the one place that people can actually be really vocal about their points of view. If you have been in corporate America, and look, I was there too, and worked at a church to boot, uh, you're not supposed to have your own point of view. You're supposed to toe the company line. You're supposed to do what they say. You're not supposed to shake the boat, rock the boat. And that muscle of self-expression can be so atrophied and beaten out of you that when you go into this space, and you dare say, I'm going to launch a podcast like Jeff Brown does. I love his podcast. And then you sit there in, the, in front of the microphone and you're like, I have nothing to say. I don't even know what I'm going to say. I work with people who say this all the time because they don't have a point of view yet. In fact, the folks who struggle the most in putting themselves out there are folks who come from highly regulated backgrounds, in my experience, working with these folks. People from education, from law, from healthcare, from the military, from government, because in those industries, anytime you step out of line, anytime you color outside the lines just a little bit, you get your wrist slapped. There's this thing called compliance right? <laughs> in the financial services world. You have to comply to everything. So that's actually a detriment when it comes to expressing yourself online or expressing your thoughts. But that's exactly what you need to do if you're going to mm-hmm. grow a business as an, a coach, a consultant, a speaker. So I ask people three simple questions, which I call the PB3. And these questions are designed to kind of get to the core. The first question is, so forgive me, I'm from New Jersey. I'm a little bit saltier. We, you know, I ask people, what pisses you off? And the second question is then, what breaks your heart? And these are very emotional questions. And then the third question is, what's the big problem you're trying to solve? Because that's your business. So what pisses you off is the injustice you see in the world. And I use that word on purpose, injustice. What breaks your heart? That is the compassion for people that you have or causes or organizations that you have. Number three, what's the big problem you're trying to solve? That's why your business exists. In this space that I'm in, in the personal brand space, and you've had hundreds of experts come on the show, Jeff, who are a personal brand. 
they are writing books. They are uh, either entrepreneurs or ideapreneurs. They're sharing their ideas. But I guarantee all of the best episodes had elements of what ticks them off and what breaks their heart. That's why it works. And the fact that you and I could probably sit here and reverse engineer the answers to those questions for someone like Seth Godin or Rory Vaden or any of these other, Simon Sinek, you know, Greg McHugh, any of these folks that you've had on the show uh, and others, that's what gives their message so much clarity. So many of us start with just question number three. What's the big problem I'm trying to solve? I'm going to help change your marketing. That doesn't mean anything if you're a solopreneur. People need to have context for your content. And that's what these questions do. Yes, similarly, and I think you know this, I've talked to to many of my clients about having a worldview and basically drawing a line in the sand that you're daring, Mm -hmm. you know, people to cross in, in, in so many words. Uh, I know sharing my point of view has got me in trouble a number of times when I work for somebody else. It even eventually got me fired, I would argue, from, from my last job. So I totally, totally get what you're saying. Well, uh, let's kind of jump around here a little bit. What has your experience taught you with regard to effectively launching a product into the marketplace? And you say this is something that a lot of uh, solopreneurs do too soon. Yeah. So I'm pretty opinionated about this because <laughs> I've seen this over the last eight years. And really these last eight years, Jeff, if you remember, like we got kind of got into the space right around the same time. And back in 2014, 15, 16, everybody was launching these huge products online, these courses. And that's when the online course craze really started. And now it's sort of died off. It sort of died off a little bit. And I think the reason it's died off is because the products just aren't very good. Many of the products just aren't very good. They expose the creator's weaknesses as an expert. So to draw an analogy, I say that there are five plays of the personal brand. And these are in no particular order except for the last one. Okay, The first four, you can mix up any way you want. You're either a coach, a consultant, a speaker, or a writer. And if you look at anyone who has successfully, number five, productized their ideas, they are usually great at one of the previous four. Some are great at more than one. Some are great at all of them. But you have to be great at one of those four, coaching, consulting, speaking, or writing, if you're going to build a successful product. What happens is a lot of folks will start to share some ideas, and they're simply regurgitating things that they've heard online. And then they say, let me just build, back to our original point, an image online on Instagram or on YouTube or whatever, and present myself as an expert and create a course. And people may buy it based on the creator's charisma or their personality, and then they buy it and it doesn't really get them any results. It doesn't work because they're not actual experts. They're just regurgitating things and then putting a nice layer of image on top of it. The folks who have productized successfully, there is a reason why Brene Brown's program, The Daring Way, she's certified people now to teach this stuff, is being used in companies worldwide to great effect. There's a reason because she's actually a legitimate expert. (laughs) She has spent years as a writer researching this topic. She has spent years as a consultant going into Fortune 500 companies and Silicon Valley startups teaching this content. She has coached people. She is a true legitimate expert. And now more in recent years, she's really come to prominence as a speaker. But my point is she was able to codify all this stuff and put it into a product. 
a lot of folks who try to do this and productize before they're actually good at anything, it would be similar to, I mean, we're in NBA playoff season right now, and it's great that, you know, things are opening back up again. But, you know, it, it would be like going down to the park, to the local courts, and seeing some guy practicing one highlight play that LeBron James made in his career, like that chase down block in the in the finals against the Golden State Warriors, right? And we, you and I sit there, and we're just looking at this dude, and all he's doing is running across the court trying to, like, leap 10 feet into the air and block a shot. And we're like, what is he doing? He's like, well, I'm going to make the NBA if I just learned this one play. And you're like, that's crazy. You got to learn how to pass. You got to learn how to shoot. You got to get in shape. You can't make the NBA just copying someone else's highlight reel. <laughs> that's what's happened. So I've been bitten by this a number of times where I've bought a course because the marketing was really good. And then I look under the hood and I'm like, this is just regurgitated stuff from 10 other people. And it's not very good. It's why I've kept my finger on the pulse of the industry and working with clients. I, I don't talk about this a lot, but I have client work all the time. It keeps me sharp. And that's why after all these years, I was finally able to say, I think I can write a book, truly put in only the things that have worked, throw out the theory, throw in the stuff that actually works, and then with confidence, sell it to people. And that's my, my, that's my opinion. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the things I think is so great about this book. And you talk about this in the book. I I have attended your webinars. I have purchased your your worksheets and templates. And I've seen you teach this stuff and hone it over years and then put it in a book and, and release it out. And when you're exactly right, it's you've honed it, you've perfected it as best you can through all that experience. You mentioned the NBA playoffs. That reminded me of a hockey game that you and I and a guy named Jody Mayberry, who is, I think, going to be interviewing me for this podcast in about a month. Uh, attending this hockey game in Nashville. And at one point, Mike has some ketchup or something on his face, and I lick a napkin <laughs> and pretend like I'm going to wipe it off Mike's face. And you've never seen somebody move so fast. I mean, it was he was so disgusted. I was like, <laughs> I was like we're friends, but no, you don't need to lick your napkin and wipe it on my face. <laughs> oh, that was hilarious. That was a good time, though. That was my first ever hockey game, I believe. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was the first ever time I went to a hockey game. I'm a a big sports fan. I like live events. And I remember you guys were telling me, if you just go to an NHL hockey game and sit pretty close, you're going to fall in love with it. And I did not. I was like, I just, (laughs) and I I, I gave it a second shot with Jody. Mm. We were in New Jersey uh, and we went to the Devils game, like sitting right on the glass, you know, right behind the glass. And I still just couldn't get into it. Hockey's not big where I grew up in New Jersey, mm-hmm. New York City. You know, we're all baseball, football, basketball people. So I tried. Despite the fact that it's in my own backyard, I believe that hockey game you and I attended all those years ago was the last time I was at a Nashville Preds hockey go. game. So there we're kind of, we're kind of uh, on the same cloth there. Uh, well, talk a bit about charging what you're worth. This is something I struggled with for years and, and what you call value pricing for things like projects. Yeah, so I and I'm going to go out on a limb here and just sound a little crazy, but I think that this chapter alone is worth the 15 bucks to get the book. Mm. There is a lot of struggle around pricing as contractors, as consultants and coaches. And I really start with what I call the traffic from hell principle, (laughs) (laughs) meaning if you had to drive 
across 30 minutes of the worst New Jersey or New York City traffic. And believe me, it's awful. And I said, Jeff, uh, I'm here inside inside my condo in Manhattan. You're in New Jersey. I need you to cross the Lincoln Tunnel or the George Washington Bridge, which is where dreams and hopes go to die. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> drive through 30 minutes of the worst traffic, bumper to bumper, that you could think of, pick up a check, and drive back home. You know, it's an hour. How much would that check need to be? <laughs> if I called you and said, hey, I got 50 bucks, you'd be like, dude, keep it. <laughs> right. <laughs> if I said 500, you might be like, I might consider. Mm. I might consider it depending on the situation of life that you're in right now, you know, or, or whenever that is. But if you're really in a different situation in life and things are going really well, I might say it's $5,000 and you might be like, eh, it's okay, dude. Mm. I don't need it. My cryptocurrency portfolio is doing really well, right? (laughs) (laughs) So you start there. And I'm not saying that that should be your hourly price, but at least you have a ballpark. At least you have a ballpark. This is where so many people struggle. They just don't even have a a compass. Mm. They don't have a North Star. So let this be sort of your compass. Then when I get into pricing, and I got this from Kirk Bowman, who I credit in the book, and he came on my podcast years ago and shared this concept with me that I've since tweaked and kind of made my own with his permission. And it's just a nine box grid. Uh, It's a three by three grid. And on the left side of the grid, you have your level of service or involvement in the project. So we all know there are some projects where you are sitting in the backseat and they're driving the car. That might be the lowest level of engagement. Mm. The regular level of engagement might be they're driving the car, but you're sitting shotgun and you're navigating them on what to do. Mm. And the highest level of engagement would be you're driving the car and they're sitting shotgun. And as a consultant, I've done all three. You should charge differently for the level of engagement. Now, across the top, you can have what is your minimum fee that you would charge for each of those three levels of service? What is the standard fee that you would charge for each of those three levels of service. And then what is the windfall amount? (laughs) What would be a crazy great amount uh, that you would charge for all three levels of service? And Kirk is the one who said this to me, Mike, if you never set a windfall amount, you will never land a windfall contract. Mm. And I still remember that all these years later. And I was like, I have to put this in the book because I've used this model for years. Jeff, when you go through these numbers, And you, the listener, you sit down and go through these numbers and actually take the time to write this out when you're pricing a project, you will see major discrepancies. (laughs) (laughs) You will say, wait, why is my level of highest engagement only a few hundred bucks more than the least level of engagement? Or why is my windfall amount only a few hundred bucks more than the minimum that I would do it for? And I start with the minimum because psychologically, that's how we all think. What's the least I would do this project for and not go too high so that the client says no? <laughs> right. We all do that. Am I, am I <laughs> yeah. wrong? Right. No, we all, no, no, we all done that. <laughs> so just seeing this grid and having this process laid out for you, if you get in the habit of doing this, and again, I encourage you grab the book just for this chapter. You will make a lot more money and you will feel way more confident in your pricing when when you do this it's a, it, it and i love that you asked me this because this is one of the questions that not a lot of folks ask on you know podcasts or on interviews um you're probably the second who person who's read the book that actually touched on that chapter the first was pat flynn who i did an interview with just a little while ago and he said this is the best conversation i've ever had on pricing and positioning on the show ever 
So your show here, wow. his show, really big podcasts. And I'm like so glad to share that model because you're a solopreneur and you're still trying to figure out what Mike Kim is charging or Jeff Brown is charging or Pat Flynn is charging or someone else is charging. You're letting other people dictate your fees. I want to I want to empower you to dictate your fees and this will help you. Another one of my favorite parts of the book, I mean, it's, I all love it all. And in this chapter you just talked about is definitely worth the price of admission for sure. But another one of my favorites is what you say about uh, developing partnerships. What are some of your favorite strategies for building some of those partner relationships that you found really, really successful? Yeah. When it comes to partnerships, I, I say in the book that relationships are rocket ships mm. and none of us can make it alone. Here you and I are all these years later. And our podcasts have grown, our businesses have grown, uh, we've grown mm. as people. And I heard this from Paul Martinelli, who may, many of you may not know, but you certainly know his clients. Paul co-founded the John Maxwell coaching team. Mm. It's called the John Maxwell team. And he partnered with John. And I heard Paul explain his perspective on things. He said, you partner up, you collaborate across, and you mentor around. And I loved that. There are folks that you and I need to partner up with you as the listener need to partner up with. They have something that you don't have. So it would be advantageous for you to partner with them or work with them in some way. Mm. They can open doors for you. They can create connections. Then you have this other, it's like a spatial analogy, right? Then you have other folks who you're collaborating across with. And a lot of times these are folks that you grew up with in the industry. Like Jeff is a friend of mine here mm. on Read to Lead. He's a friend of mine. <laughs> I'm a friend of his. We, we will collaborate together. He's coming to speak to my mastermind next month, right? When we're doing it in Nashville. And we're just helping each other. We're working together. How are you doing on your book launch? How are you doing on your book launch? We're just, we're just friends when we're collaborating together. And then the folks who come to me for help, direct help, or through my products or coaching programs or workshops, I'm mentoring those people. Hmm. I'm mentoring the folks who are around me. And Jeff, I think that that alone can help people understand the different levels of engagement there. Now, one of the things that I did do early on to partner up with folks, because I didn't have much to give, mm. was just become their best student. I did this with guys like Michael Hyatt and Ray Edwards. I realized that uh, they had audiences that were sometimes 100,000, in some cases, a million people. There's no way I could cut through the noise and there's no way I could add anything to them <laughs> financially or you know, uh, in terms of brand exposure. I was just starting out. But the one thing I noticed is that they were paying very keen attention to folks who were in their coaching programs and their mm. students. And they wanted those people to succeed because their name's on the line. Mm. So I figured instead of being one of a million, I could be one of a thousand if I joined their coaching program. Mm. And out of those thousand people, I noticed most of them aren't really doing anything. So let me be one of 10 mm. who actually really go all out and do a stellar job and talk about them and promote their program and show my small audience how helpful their program has been. And early on, that's how I got a lot of my exposure. Mm. Michael Hyatt, when he was manning his own Twitter account back in the day, you know, he's <laughs> since grown and evolved, you know, as a business. But back then he was paying very close attention to the program that I was in. And he would mm. tweet my blog posts all the time. He would share them online. And I remember how empowering that was because I felt seen. I felt validated. But I realized now I was also giving him something. I was giving him validation. What course creator, what expert, Michael truly is an expert, would not want a great case study, would not want one of his or her students to succeed. And I realized that was one of the things that I could give him. 
And as a result, he promoted me to his audience. He promoted me on webinars. I came on and did testimonials for various programs that he ran. Yeah. Yep. That's how you, that's how I did it. And I lay out a couple of other strategies, but that right there is important to lay a hold of. Now, at this point, I'm not sure that that strategy would work with Michael because he's since grown. Mm -hmm. His business is probably 10 X since that time. And these kinds of gurus, Tony Robbins, Dave Ramsey, these kinds of folks, they don't need more testimonials. They've been established <laughs> so long that they're many layers removed from mm -hmm. the every person. But when you find someone who's kind of on the ascent and they're growing, you want to get around them, kind of grow with them, kind of ride the wave with them. I'm not saying you leech off of them, but get around them so that they can be a mentor to you. Um, and at that time, he was still paying very close attention to these programs. He's since sold that program. He's sold the intellectual rights to somebody else, another mm -hmm. expert. And he's focused most on, mostly on leadership and productivity. That course was on blogging. Mm. <laughs> he doesn't teach that anymore. So that's why you've got to find someone who's kind of just really, really keeping a pulse still on their audience. And it's really important there. Uh, that said, I'm doing my darndest to convince his staff uh, to make uh, read to lead the book, the featured book and leader books coming in September. <laughs> so, there you still, go. So don't know the, know the outcome of that, but I'm crossing my fingers. Um, there are a couple of quotes in your book related to personal development that stood out to me that I kind of wanted to have you riff on a little bit. I left them in the other room, so I'm going to try to regurgitate them here from, from memory. Uh, but one of them along the lines of when I spend more time working on myself, the money just seems to come. And the odd thing is I care less about the money. And the other one was related to investing in, in yourself and how you have a little more control over the, the outcome. Can you talk a mm -hmm. bit about those and how they relate? Yeah. So when it comes to investing in yourself, the market's rigged because you can dictate the returns, right? And I'm an investor. There are things that I cannot, I cannot control the market. I'm at the mercy of the market. You know, I just mentioned a few minutes ago, cryptocurrency. <laughs> that thing is more volatile than, I, yeah, it's a bad analogy or whatever, <laughs> right? But it's just so volatile. Mm. You can't control it. You can't control or dictate the returns. But when you invest in yourself, you dictate the returns. And so a lot of folks look at buying courses or joining masterminds or programs or going to these seminars. And they view them as expenses, and they're not expenses. Mm. They're investments. Anytime I've invested, e even just, it doesn't have to be a $7,500 programmer or Tony Robbins seminar, which I've certainly spent on. Mm. But if you get just one good idea from a $15 or $20 book, wasn't it worth it, even if you didn't finish the rest of the book? Absolutely. That's the way I look at it. Mm. You know, uh, So you might say, well, Mike, I'm not really going to read the rest of the book, but that one chapter on the pricing grid, <laughs> that made the 20 bucks worth it. Mm. Well, then you just invested 20 bucks to learn a simple tactic that could shape the rest of business and how you price things for the rest of your life. That's a pretty good investment. And if you run with it, you can control the returns. So I'm really, really a big believer in investing in yourself. And that ties into the, the, to the other, other concept that you mentioned, which is the more that you work on yourself, uh, the more success tends to come and truly working on yourself because entrepreneurship has this funny way of bringing out the best in you, but also revealing the roughest parts of you. Mm. When I was in that process of trying to build the person, become the person that could build a campfire and have people come and sit around and, and build that community. 
uh, it was hard work. I went through some personal challenges in the last couple of years. I actually signed my book deal five years ago and I couldn't write the book because I went through a really painful divorce. And I had to look at myself during those seasons and you know, even still today, how can I continue to become the person that I'm saying I want to be for people? Uh, the first chapter of the book is titled, Who Do You Have to Become in Order to Serve the People You Want to Serve? And that's a very telling question. It's a very hard question to ask and to think about. And yet the more I've kept at the edge of becoming healthier and more whole financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, in my craft, uh, in the way that I do business, and not filling the space, and this is something that's really come into my awareness lately, it's hard to catch a football if you're already holding two footballs in your hands. And we want something from the universe or from you know God or from whatever you call it. We want life to throw us different opportunities, and yet our hands are full because we're doing so many other things or we're not leaving space for those opportunities to come into our lives. And the more I've let go, and typically the way that we fill that space is unhealthy. Mm. We binge Netflix. We drink too much. We eat too much. We, you know, get into, if you're single, one bad relationship after another (laughs) and you just, (laughs) right? Uh, Escapism, you name it. Mm. We're really good at this. Human beings, we're really good at this. So Jeff, really what I've found is that when I started to create space and was healthy enough to face my own issues and face my own rough parts, that the universe, that opportunities, just more and more of them started to come to me. I started to attract them rather than chase them. And that's what it really is about that makes you attractive. I mean, who doesn't want to work with or hire someone who is healthy and is stable and is growing and has energy and who wouldn't want that? Right. So uh, that's my you. That's that's the point of the book. At Mm. the end of the day, you are the brand, baby. You know, (laughs) so become it, you know, be that person. Mm. So, yeah, that's Mm. that's how I see things. Well, before I ask uh, a couple of questions I want to get to that aren't directly related to your book, anything else from the book you want to make sure we know? Um, you can get all the details at youarethebrandbook.com. We have some amazing bonuses that are sort of like jelly to the peanut butter that is the <laughs> book. Uh, you can I won't belabor all of the details. Uh, hopefully, I've given enough for you to be curious enough to, mm. to check out the book. You can ob- also read a free chapter of the book at youarethebrandbook.com. The first chapter is free. And if you want to pick it up, all the details are there. So thanks so much for that. But yeah, let's mm. jump into some other mm. questions. Well, I always like to ask a reading-related question. I know you're an avid reader, so I would be curious to know a little bit about your history with reading and how reading and the habit of reading consistently and with intention has played a a role in your success, would you say? It has been the key differentiating factor Mm. my entire life. I don't have many good memories of childhood. We had a pretty rough home. Mm. I do remember my dad sitting down with me as a kid in the evenings, probably when I was five or six making me read, Mm. reading with me, the newspaper just taught me to read. Now, like you, when I went to school, I hated reading (laughs) because the subjects were boring and Mm. I didn't really enjoy what I was reading. And I didn't read much for leisure. I did occasionally through, you know, grade school and junior Mm. high and high school, but I was also a boy. And what I mean by that, I want to go play video games. Mm. I want to go play basketball outside. I want to run around and hit people and (laughs) play football and all that kind of deal. 
Uh, and, and if I did read anything, I was reading comic books because they were visual. Mm-hmm. I still have a you know a stack of five hundred some odd comic books from when I was oh, wow. junior high and high school. So that was my history with reading. But when I became a young adult, right around eighteen or nineteen, I mentioned earlier that I was pretty involved with church and with music, and I got really interested in leadership. And I remember some of the early books I read during that time were John Maxwell's books, mm. who I went on to go get hired by mm-hmm. to run their marketing for about you know a little less than a year, Wow, which is pretty crazy. And I told John, I was like, I read my first book. I, I read you know 20, 21 Irrefutable Laws when I was 19. And I'm sure he hears that all the time. <laughs> but imagine being, you know, he's close to about 70 years old or somewhere around there now, hearing people all over the world say, I was able to tap into your knowledge and know-how because you wrote a book. And since then, I've just, anytime I've lost my way, my number one thing is to find books on the topic and read them, Mm. you know, personally, professionally, anytime. Uh, And it has been the key differentiator. You mentioned uh, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Any besides that that stand out over the years as maybe even ones you go back to from time to time and reread or just that were some of your favorites? Yeah. So the book that's impacted me the most in my life has been, this might sound a little out there for you, um, (laughs) but is a Chinese historical novel called Three Kingdoms. Okay. I read this when I was in high school because my friend sent me a computer game that was based on this. And it Mm. takes place just after the fall of the Han Dynasty, like right around 189 AD. And I'm not Chinese, I'm Korean, so I don't speak Chinese. I don't know these names. They're just as foreign to me as they are to everybody else. Mm. But I I was familiar with the characters because of the video game. And this was a time in China where anarchy ruled. It was every man for themselves. The dynasty had fallen. There were local regional warlords that had their own armies, and they were trying to take territories. And essentially, when the dust settled, there were three kingdoms left. You know, the, the whole northern region was owned by one kingdom. The southeast was owned by another. They were protected by the the river. And the southwest Mm. was owned by a third kingdom. And Jeff, it's this brilliant political interplay of all these different rulers, advisors, generals, warriors, um, political discussions, war. And it really helped me from a young age become Mm. strategic. I love seeing things from a 30,000-foot view. Mm. And you mentioned, I, I simplify things. It's because I look at everything from a far distance. Mm. And I just see that things are simple. I, that's just kind of how I process things. That novel, and it's depending on the edition you buy, it's two books or four books. It's a long, stinking <laughs> thing, right? But the video game helped familiarize me mm. to it. Well, when I got the copies when I was in high school, you couldn't find them at Barnes & Noble. And so I asked my father, how can I get this book? He's like, you're reading Three Kingdoms? I was forced to read that when I was in <laughs> high school in Korea. I hated it. Why would you want to read this? And I was like, I just love it. Wow. So he was like, okay, I'll help you find it. And <laughs> we found it in a library about four towns away. Wow. And so I uh, I had him shipped to my local library. And I pressed the boundaries a little bit, and he thought this was actually funny. Uh, I told the library I lost the books, and so I paid the fee, but I just kept them. That's how I got the books, right? And that's how I got them. And since then, greater editions have the of the book have come out because the video game company has grown, mm. and it's made these stories mainstream. And there are a number of movies 
uh, and TV shows about this very famous book. It's considered one of the top three literary jewels of Chinese mm, history. Wow. So if you've ever walked into a Chinese restaurant or the next time that you do, and you see a long bearded man in a green robe with a long spear, he's from that book. Mm. He's deified. He's wow. a character from those books. He's deified in Chinese culture. And so it really taught me a lot in terms of strategy, business, life. It taught me sometimes that the good guys don't always win, mm. you know, and it really shaped um, how I see the world. The second book that I would say has shaped me profoundly is Necessary Endings by Dr. Henry Cloud, mm -hmm. uh, a book that I read and then reread over and over and over again. And it helped me realize that endings in life are just as normal and natural as new beginnings. Mm. We tend to elevate this idea of new beginnings. We love the springtime. We love the summer. <laughs> new things are going to start. We don't realize that things dying off and ending are just as normal in life. Mm. That really shaped me. So mm. those two books, uh, the most profound. And you can see that they're not business or marketing books. They're just books mm. that really shape the way I see the world. Well, beyond the book coming out, what would you say is on the horizon that you're excited about and are able and in a position to share? Anything? Yeah, I'm excited about not knowing what... <laughs> <laughs> it's going to happen with this book. But in all honesty, like I, I've mentioned this a little bit, but you know, the last couple of years were pretty challenging mm. because of some personal things. And you know this, and you know, we're friends offline. You've been to my house and you've, you've walked with me through a lot of those years, mm. uh, you and Annie both. But this is the first time in probably five years that I've really, 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 truly been excited mm. about something, the book coming out and the book now being available because I've learned in the last five years, you can't predict life. You really can't. You just do not know what's going to happen. Mm. And I think now being in my early 40s and a lot of what I thought my life would look like is not here, right? Mm. I thought mm. I'd have kids. We bought that big house and, you know, and all the things. And I'm really just excited about not knowing mm. and yet being wiser. And the things that I've learned from these last few years and in starting my business and seeing it grow all these years and the influence and the friendships and getting healthier. Dude, I wasn't very healthy over the last three, four, five years. I was a wreck, right? But now getting to this place, I'm like, what does life have for me? This is exciting. <laughs> I could end up staying in DC, moving mm. back to New York, living off the grid. Who knows? <laughs> and honestly, that's all I can say. Mm. I have some business plans, but I'm genuinely mm. excited about not knowing because I feel like I am the best version of myself that I've ever been. Mm. And, um, now I've got a book that I can share with people with a message I'm proud of. We'll see where it leads. So that's really what I'm excited about, about not knowing. Awesome. I love it. Well, that book, again, is You Are the Brand, the eight-step blueprint to showcase your unique expertise and build a highly profitable, personally fulfilling business. Um, Youarethebrandbook.com. His name is Mike Kim. Mike, thank you for coming on the Read to Lead podcast, introducing me to Korean barbecue and everything else you've brought to my life the last seven, eight years. <laughs> uh, it has been my pleasure to be with you, Jeff. You, the listener, it's been such a pleasure to be with you. And uh, please connect with me online. You can find me everywhere. And I just love to see how you're doing and see your business grow. So thank you for your time as well. 
If you have any aspirations at all about developing your own personal brand, or maybe you're already doing that and you just want to get better at it, I cannot recommend Mike's book highly enough. For all the details about it, the things we chatted about, links and resources, you know what to do by now. It's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 378 for episode 378. That's where you'll find all the notes on this episode. Again, readtoleadpodcast.com slash 378. As I said earlier, in about a week, you'll be able to go to readtoleadbook.com to get all the details on my new book. I can tell you that some of the freebies coming your way when you pre-order the book, which you can do for as little as like $11.39 on our publisher's website. Again, more will be at the readtoleadbook.com website about that. Uh, It includes things like uh, our four-module mini-course, four modules taught by Jesse, my co-author and myself, that you can watch in under an hour where we take the book's concepts and help you implement them. You'll get the audiobook version for free. We've got a couple of ebooks that we're passing along for free as well, plus a free bonus chapter, a chapter that I wrote not in the book. We kind of ran out of time to include everything. And so this bonus chapter, along with the other items that I mentioned, are only going to be available to people who pre-order the book. They're valued at about 500 bucks, but again, they're yours when you buy one copy of the book, which again can be had for as little as 1139 depending on where you buy it. All those details starting next week will be at readtoleadbook.com. Hey, thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. I hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 